0: Well, um, you know, we have that struggle every year, all the commercial, the cultural stuff going on with the holidays, and it seems to start earlier and earlier. It wouldn't surprise me if some of the stores start setting stuff out after the 4th of July next year, you know? It's just like, it drives me crazy. Now, even though you and I know, are you with me in here, we should be celebrating, we should be celebrating Christmas, we, the birth of Christ, Christ's first advent, his coming into this world. We should be celebrating that every day. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We should be. Just like we rest in him. Like, just like we celebrate uh, the resurrection 24-7. We celebrate the Sabbath as we're resting in the finished work of Christ 24-7, right? But it's okay to have a time of year where we kind of emphasize. He probably wasn't born on December 25th, but it's okay to celebrate that. It's okay to celebrate uh, this gift and, and, and what happens even in our culture, you know, with all the things. Focus on on some positive things like hope and peace. Who doesn't need some of that, right? So it's kind of an opportunity to be a witness for the gospel, Amen. Anybody excited about that out there? Yeah, during this time of year, to be a witness for that, spreading good cheer. Boy, it would be great if some people would do that, right? And uh, all of this kind of stuff. Doing good things. And then putting up the lights. And, you know, while I was gone, you guys did. This looks so amazing. All of you that helped, God bless you. You know, it's kind of like I love the decorations. I love enjoying them. I just don't always like doing them. I see a lot of our guys looking at the corner of the eye at their wives and kind of like, you know, I climbed around before we left and after we got back, and I like the lights. You know, it occurred to me the Christmas lights can enhance the spirit of Christmas and the cheer and all the festivities, but it can also kill them too when the lights go bad. How many of you know it's like they're not supposed to all go out when one bulb burns out, but the bulb didn't burn out. It was just a little bit loose. And then you got to climb back on the roof when you get home from like, say, a trip and you got to climb all around there, wiggling every light to find the one that's loose. And it's like you start way down here and it's like the second to the end. I should have started on the other end. I mean, the person I'm talking about should have started on the other end. And then they all come back on. Oh, they can be frustrating, uh, but they're they're wonderful. We get all into this, and, and we enjoy this. It's just a special time of year. The kids are all excited. Um, but you know what I think? I think Christmas got started even earlier than what we realize. In fact... You know, uh, people feel safe today. The idea of baby Jesus, you know, it's like the story I always tell of the five-year-old who they go to the, the nativity scene at the drive-thru. He grows up there. He gets out of the car. He goes up there and looks at it and comes back and says, Mom, baby Jesus is the same exact size he was last year. Like he didn't grow any, right? But it's like people want to keep him there. They don't want to think about and focus on the fact that he came so that he could go to the cross, be the perfect representation of, of lost humanity and a perfect holy God and bring the two together by his... Toning death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. You know, that that part, you know, sometimes people don't want to think about. So let's uh, let's find out who he really is. And the beginning of John's gospel, if you're open to it, it has a it has a ring to it that sounds familiar, does it not? Kind of sounds like Genesis 1:1, in the beginning. And instead of saying in the beginning, God, he says, in the beginning was the word. So uh, read this here with me. In the beginning, John Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men or mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Drop down to verse 14. And this same one we're talking about, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son. And that word there in the original language is monogenes, the one of a kind, the unique son. Uh, The old translations say only begotten, but that really doesn't say it in our language. The unique one of a kind, the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, speaking of John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said... People that he's writing this to in in the original days when he first wrote it, they remembered hearing John the Baptist say this. This is the one who I told you about. Uh, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the Baptist knew that Jesus was actually born after he was, but he said he was before me. John the Baptist recognized the beginning of Christmas, didn't he? In eternity. Right? He was before me. He's always been. And verse 16. For from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God. The only God. Who is at father's side. He has. Or the only only son. The only God. A couple of different ways of translating that. Uh, He has speaking of Christ, is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has revealed him. And, and so the beginning of John's gospel sounds a lot like Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, the word. This one whom John calls the word, or the Greek word that's translated there, that John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write when he first wrote this, is the word logos. That logos is none other than Jesus Christ. And you know, it's funny, John starts off his gospel a similar way that he started off his letter to the churches that we call 1 John. So you might want to look at that later on. But as he explains he's going to tell us about about this one this one who has come to save us this one who is the word and so we're going to hear the first word i'm going to give you the first word everybody say word up no i'm kidding (laughs) i'll give you the first word about christmas and you just heard it uh, that jesus is the word follow me on this now you ready he is number one the eternal word that's who he is You notice it says in the beginning. And in the beginning of what we call the beginning. He is already there. Amen. John begins the same way Genesis begins. And we immediately we slide through this time tunnel. That transports us to eternity past. In eternity. Before creation. Before God spoke anything into existence. That we would call the universe. Before. Get this. Before time itself began. What we know is time. There existed the everlasting triune God. That's what he's saying. In Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. The psalmist speaking from Old Testament days says this. Lord you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from forever to forever, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's, I mean, from eternity past. I mean, we think about eternity future. Did you know that with God there is an eternity the other direction as well? No beginning. Mind blown. Because as human beings we live within time. All that our gray matter here. All that our human brains and our finite understanding can relate to. Is something has a beginning and things have an end. Now when we talk about that now that you and I have been created by God. That we're, going, we're created for eternity. We can kind of fathom a little bit of that. That it'll go on forever. God has, has made you to live forever. But eternity passed. It's as eternal that direction. As from where we're standing as it is the other. It makes us say, wow, be in awe from everlasting to everlasting, from forever to forever. I don't know about you, but my mind is totally overwhelmed right now just thinking about that. The language that John uses here is very direct in that, I mean, we believe the word of God is inspired every bit of it. In it's original form. And that the grammar and everything. Is very important here. And the way he says this is very powerful. It translates into our language. He uses the word in. In the beginning. It was before the foundation of the world. Was laid out right. Before creation. It's not from the beginning. But you go to. In the beginning. He was already past tense was. In the beginning was how about that he's already there in what we call the beginning so in the beginning he already was it excludes the idea of origin so for this baby who ended up being born in the uh in, in the in the cattle in the in the in the actually the little stall there the stable there where livestock were kept and there was a manger which you and i better know is a feeding trough Our our nativity scenes probably don't look anything like what the real scene looked like. I mean, there was no room in the inn. They stayed where the animals stayed. That's where it was. That that baby that was born there had already existed from eternity past. There is no origin to who he is. That's what John's trying to tell us. And if you look at the grammar, he uses what's called the imperfect tense Of a word that is translated as a to be. uh, A to be type verb. It excludes the idea of origin. If he wanted to tell us about the origin of Jesus Christ. He would have not used grammar and language like this. Instead what he's doing is he's telling us. There is no origin to who he is. In the beginning he already was. Now there was a time of the origin for his humanity. When he became flesh. And we've already read that in verse 14. But there was no origin to his essence. That's why I keep referring to it as who he is. Therefore John's testifying to us that Jesus is divine. He's testifying to us about the deity of Christ. In the beginning Christ already was. In the beginning was the Word. He refers to Jesus as the Word. This is not the only time that John does that. Now, there are several words that could be translated Word. He's not talking about a mere spoken word here. That's not what he means. It indicates more than that. It goes deeper than that. Because what are words but the expression of an idea? Are you following me on this? you got to put your thinking caps on a little bit here, okay? The expression of an idea. The word means the logos. Is the expression or thought as embodying a concept or idea. That is Jesus is the exact expression. He is the embodiment of God. That's what he means by logos. The expression, the embodiment of God. See the word is not nearly the name for an idea. but uh, uh, But it is the idea itself expressed. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Are you ready? Let's go to Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Ready? Boom! There we are. See it? Write it down. You can look it up again later. All right. Hebrews one three says, speaking of Jesus, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the outshining, the shining forth. Of the glory of God. And this is what else he is. The exact imprint of his nature. Whose nature? God's nature. The very essence of God. It's like an imprint. And the word there is one that is used when you stamp an imprint of an image on a coin. You could use it that way. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the essence or the nature of God. And he, who? Jesus. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is who we worship. This is who came to save us. I need to step back and take breath, okay? All right. Let's go on to to Paul's uh, description in Colossians 1.5. Paul says this. He is, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. He's the visible expression the invisible God that word translated image there is a Greek word that we're kind of familiar with these days it it started with computers it's the Greek word icon right because we you have a program and you have this shortcut on your desktop right uh uh called an icon and you well used to you clicked now you tap right we've gone from click to tap what's next I don't want to know but anyway, that you, 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 you click on that, or you tap on that icon, you don't open an icon, you open, open the program. The icon represents, it is the program there that's accessible for you, right? That's what Jesus is when it comes to God. You click on Jesus, you get God. You don't just get some prophet, you don't get just some teacher, you don't get a myth, you get God. He is the icon, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, he says, in the beginning, are you still with me? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. With God was God. With God was With God was With God was God. Say that five times as fast as you can. <laughs> what is this all about? See, this is not in the with God is not in the sense of just being in the company of God, but it is in the sense of being in the most intimate connection and fellowship and communion with God. Notice the deep mystery that John lays out here. It's the mystery of that deep but awesome truth known as the Trinity, the triune nature of God, the Word, Jesus, we know that's who he's talking about, is with God. Noting d- d- deep communion, but also that he is God, or more properly, at that time, before the beginning of time, he was already God. He is God. He is God, but there's a noted distinction between the Father and the Son. With God was God. He is God, but there's a distinction. One essence, Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how deep and awesome that just is. It just is. There's no way logically. Remember what I always say? That's just like that big fat brother in law you have. You love him, but you just can't quite get your arms around him, right? This is that incredible truth that I love. I just can't quite get my arms around it. Amen? Okay. Um, so he is the eternal word. He is. He was. He always has been. He always will be. So the beginning of Christmas, there is no beginning. In eternity past, this was on God's heart. When he knew, he always knew. You're going to need a savior, amen? He's the eternal word. He's the word, but he's eternal. Secondly, he's not only the eternal word, he's the creative word. As we go on, it says that uh, not only that he was in the beginning with God, that all things, verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's the creator. So there's two big facts that stand out here regarding Christ's deity. You ready for it? First of all, Christ himself was not created. He's always been. Amen? Amen. Secondly, everything else that has been created was created by and through him. That's what he's telling us here. It's like as you see the order in the system of God himself. That you think about the persons of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father was the architect, but Jesus was the primary agent of creation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, you ready for 1 Corinthians 8, 6? Here it comes. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul says, yet for us, there is one God. It's not three, one God, one essence, the father from whom are all things. See that From whom are all things and for whom we exist. Follow me closely here. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom. Created through Christ. Through whom are all things. And guess what? Through whom we exist. He didn't just create it and back away. He's upholding it. So we're not only created by him, through him. For him through whom we exist. that is so powerful. He's not only the creator, he's the sustainer, right? He didn't just back what he sustains the universe. Um, the next place I want to refer to is Paul's reference to that in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Colossians 1:16 he says, "For by him, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, Paul confirms, were created. Here it is again. Are you ready? Through him and for him. Let it sink in. Verse 17. And he is number one. He is primero, right? He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Even the atoms would fly apart, was it not, for his sustaining hand on all these things. He was not created. He is the creator. He's the eternal word. He's the creative word. He didn't merely create, listen to me. He didn't merely create all things for God. He created all things as God. All things came into being through him. The word spoke. And the universe came into existence. As the creator, he is the origin, he is the source of all life. But think of this for a second. I'm gonna step back. I gotta think about something. I got a thought. I got a thought that jumped right in here that I gotta think about out loud. All right? So I'm gonna express it right now. As creator, he spoke, and universes flew from his fingertips. But as Savior, he had to be born into human flesh, live a life of perfection, go to the cross, suffer, die, shed his blood, conquer death, sin, hell, the grave, and be resurrected to buy redemption for all of us. Sounds like it was a whole lot more involved and a whole lot more trouble to save you and I than it was to create universes. Mm. It's just a thought that just come on me there. He's the eternal word. He's the creative word. And he became, hallelujah, the incarnate word. Amen. Incarnate. Now, incarnate is an old word, and it kind of comes from the old languages. In incarnate means, right? If you know Spanish, it means flesh, right? You get uh, chili con carne, it's going to have some meat in it. Uh, you already knew that, I'm sorry. Um, that's good. So, when we say incarnation, so basically that means in fleshment. So he is the incarnate word. That you, you hear that incarnate thrown around a lot during Christmas. And I wonder how many people really think about what that means. These verses that come here are the climax of all that John's been leading up to in this prologue here. As he starts off his gospel. He starts in the beginning. Up to this point we've been told that the word is a person. And that he is eternal. He is in fact a member of the Godhead. He is one who was there at creation. Indeed, he is the creator. He is distinct from, yet intimately in fellowship with, and one in essence with God the Father. We see that there. He is the source, he says, of light and life. We've not been told yet by John who this is. And now in verse 14, he tells us who he is. He says, and the word became flesh. There's your incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This one John has been introducing is Jesus Christ. He is greater than the law. He goes on to talk about how that... um, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the one. He is full of grace and truth. The law was a revelation of God written in stone. The Lord Jesus Christ is the revelation of God manifest in human flesh. He dwelt among mankind. He is the full and he is the final Revelation to us human beings of God. Now this translation here, the word became flesh, don't just fly past that. That's right on with the Greek, became flesh. Now there's an older translation like King James will say, was made flesh. That doesn't quite get it in our language, I don't think. That's a little sloppy. He was not made because he already existed. The grammar here in the original language agree with this, that he who was already existed became. He became flesh. He already existed. And the Greek word dwelt, and dwelt among us, is a word that, you guess how you could, you could translate that word tent or tabernacle? He literally, you could say, and it's used in this form where you could translate it as he tabernacled among us right because this flesh is just our tent right our tabernacle that we live in amen that's so john this is not a coincidence john's kind of playing upon words here playing upon old testament history and imagery you remember the tabernacle was God's means of dwelling in the midst of his people in the Old Testament days. The tabernacle was a visible representation of God's presence. In the beginning, the Shekinah glory of God glowed out of that tabernacle that God's presence is everywhere, but he manifested particularly right there. And, that, and so God, John's saying that God came and God himself tabernacled among us. This is so much better than the Old Testament tabernacle. Amen. How much better. God's glory was once displayed in that. But now God's glory in the flesh. In Christ Jesus. God himself has come down to us. In the flesh. In real time. God has walked among us. Not as a phantom. Or not as an image. But in the flesh. As a real human being. He was fully God still, but he also became fully human, complete with a human nature. If you've been tuning in on my Wednesday night classes last month, we've been doing some of the major doctrines. And we studied the doctrine of Christ, the dual nature of Christ. And those of you who are here, you remember the hypostatic union, all of that stuff we studied. That's what this is all dealing with. That's what this is talking about. The dual nature of Christ, fully God, fully human. It's, it's undiminished deity. Within pure humanity. He didn't have a sinful nature like I was born with. But he was pure human nature. Tempted in all points like all of us. Yet without sin. He never sinned in thought. In attitude. Or in action. Had he done that, he would have had to die for his own sins. But because he fulfilled every part of the law perfectly, and because he did that, he is the perfect one to take your sins and my sins to the cross, make the payment on it, so that God can give us grace upon grace that he talks about. He can pour out his grace upon us. Grace is giving us what we do not deserve and could never earn. God can do that and still be true to his perfection and holiness because he didn't overlook the sin and let it into his presence. It was paid for by the only one qualified to bring perfect God and lost humanity together. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Some theologian, I can't remember who it was, I had in some old notes, one said that's the the most powerful hyphen ever between that word God-man when you're describing Jesus because never did a hyphen mean so much because it's what separates God from man and it's also what joined together God and man and that's exactly what Jesus did. He joined us together by his death on the cross, but he had to come the way that he came. It was very important. It was very necessary that he did that. He tabernacled among his people. And John can then say, "We saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten or the one and only, the monogenes, the one of a kind son." Full of grace and truth who came from the Father. Jesus wasn't a phantom. He wasn't a spirit when he ministered on earth. Nor was his body merely an illusion. John and the other disciples testify over and over that each one of them had a personal experience that convinced them of the reality of the body of Jesus. He was really here. We didn't dream it. In fact, when John starts out his book, First John, I'm just going to turn over there really quickly. He says that. Sounds similar, doesn't it? John, first John, 1 John one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, my ears heard him. I really heard him speak through vocal cords that he had in his body. We heard. We have seen with our eyes. My eyes actually saw him in the flesh. John's giving some testimony here. He's a witness, right? What does a witness do? Testify. Here's what I heard. Here's what I saw. Here's what I felt. Here's what I know. First hand testimony. Says says, looked upon with my eye, our eyes, which we, because he's not the only one, looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He says that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made known to us, manifest to us. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He said, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Hallelujah. Wow, this is powerful stuff. This is what he's saying. Even though John's emphasis in his gospel is on the deity of Christ, he makes it clear that he came in the flesh. He really did. He was subject to sinless infirmities of human nature. We see him become physically weary at one point. We see him get thirsty and need a drink at a well at one point. John points out that he wept and that he bled. Yes, the whole thing. But he did it in perfection unlike all of us. So he makes that clear. So how was the word made flesh? Well, you and I know as we read on in the gospels and we come to Luke and Luke really goes into detail about the virgin birth. That's how he became flesh. That's how perfect God entered into sinless humanity as a, as a, as a perfect human. I mean, that's how he came into this sinful world. I should say is through the virgin birth, the seed of the woman. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter three, where he said, the seed of the woman would come and crush the enemy's head, right? Well, you and I, I know enough about biology, even though people in our culture and world are really mixed up about biology. I think most of you know much about biology, about birds and bees, you know, and about the seed and the egg and all of that. And we know that the male doesn't, I mean, the male is the one who has the seed, not the female, she has the egg, but he says the seed of the woman. It makes no sense. Lord, we need to have a talk about this, you know, so that you understand how you supposedly create. No, God knew exactly what he was saying because it was that a woman was going to have a child Without contact with a man, the seed of the woman is gonna come. There's only one that ever fit that bill, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why the virgin birth is so vital to this whole teaching to protect the purity of the humanity of Christ because in Adam we all sin. Paul tells us that. We all inherited that sinful nature from Adam. In Adam we all sin. We're all sons of Adam. From our father to his father to his father to his father to his father, father, all the way back to Adam. There's a gap here somewhere because when it came to Jesus coming to the world, there was no Adam. Born of a virgin. Of the Holy Spirit. It's very powerful. And it's very necessary. So here's what we're getting to. And I don't know where I first heard this, where I first saw this. I don't know who first should be attributed. It was in some, you know, I copy notes from old notes and through these years that I've been teaching and preaching and studying and learning and trying to grow in my relationship with the Lord. I write things down. I don't always put where I first got it. But this is a statement that's not original with me, but it's been echoed through, through decades, maybe centuries, that Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. There it is boiled down. That's it. The most obvious and important connection John makes is this, folks. Talking about the beginning of Christmas. The God who created the universe is the one who was found lying in Bethlehem's manger. John wants us to know that this Jesus that he introduces is the promised Messiah spoken about by all the prophets. And more than this, the Jesus who is the Messiah is the Savior and he is God. All of that. Our Lord did not begin to be in Bethlehem. He did not even have his origins in Genesis 1 and 2 when the world was created. He was there. He already existed. He was there with God. He's there as God. That's what John tells us. In the pagan religions, the god, they you know, always trying to produce counterfeits, right? Cuz that's what Satan is, a counterfeiter. In the pagan religions, the gods have come down to earth in some form, but never was there an incarnation like that of our Lord Jesus. So, too, in some of the false religions, men are promised that they will become gods. But never that God would take on humanity like what John describes here. And come to save us the way Jesus does. He's not just the eternal word and the creative word. The incarnate word. He is the final word. He's the final word. Hebrews 1.3 we're going to go there in a couple of weeks, Lord willing. One, one through three declares that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the final word from heaven. If you're looking for something else, if you're looking for some other sign, some other thing to convince you, you're not going to get it because in Jesus, he said it all. There's nothing else. There's no one else. And that's exactly what the apostles said in preaching in Acts chapter four, verse 12. They said this, nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. He's the final word. And he's the final word concerning grace. He has both fullness of grace and truth, it says in verse 16 and 17. Grace is God's favor and kindness bestowed upon us. We can't earn it or deserve it, right? Aren't you glad that God gives us both grace and truth? If He dealt with us only according to truth, none of us would survive because we are all sinners. But He deals with us on the basis of grace and truth. Jesus, in His life, His death, His resurrection, met all the demands of the law on your behalf. Did you know that? On your behalf. Now. This is the amazing thing. That just blows my mind. I haven't got this up there. But in Romans 8 verse 4. Verse 3. You got to hear this. Okay. Before we close. Paul says. For God has done what the law weakened by our sinful flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What did Jesus do? He condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't just win. He didn't just beat the devil as God. He he did it in, in his flesh. Did it as a human. In the flesh. Did you hear that? He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those of us who have trusted God and we're, we're walking in the Spirit, we're following the Holy Spirit, we're following the Lord. He fulfilled, he met the righteous requirement of the law on my behalf. You know how huge that is? Because I've blown it time and time and time again. I could never fulfill it. Even if I live perfect from here on out in every way, I've already blown it and so have you. But Jesus, on your behalf, fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. God demands perfection. And for us to be in heaven with him, we're going to have to be perfect. And guess what? What he demands, he provided through Jesus Christ. What a gift! Woo! How does this ever get old to people now? I don't, I don't understand where you're at if this gets boring. He reveals God to us. Verse 18, back over in our text, says that. That he, uh, no one's seen God. God's essence isn't physically visible to us. But the one of a kind, the monogenes, the only begotten, as you might say, who was, at the father's, who was at the father's side, in the father's bosom, you could say, he made him known. As to his essence, God is invisible, but the word declared, he declared is an English word. It's translated from a Greek word that we get our English word. And I'm going to throw this at you. You got to pay attention. We're not done yet. Don't check out on me. It's the word exegesis. He exegeted God to us. Now, let me explain what that means. That means to unfold, to bring out. When I'm teaching, here's what a preacher and teacher should do. We should exegete the passage. That is, that we read the word of God and unfold out of it. Here's what it says. We unfold it uh, to explain it, unpack it out. There's a difference with a lot of people teach using eisegesis, where they have a thought or an idea, and they try to find a scripture to cram it into and make it fit. That's not what we want to do. We want to take it and let the word of God bring out the truth. So, so this is what Jesus did. He unfolded. He, he declared. He explained uh, God. He exegeted. He led the way he, of God for us. He explains God to us and interprets him for us. We simply cannot understand God apart from knowing Jesus Christ. There's no way. And because of all that he did, he's been here. Now we have a savior who is not only qualified to die for our sins, but we have a God who not only knows everything, but he knows what it feels like to be in the flesh and your back hurt. Wanda said, amen. It's so good to have sister Wanda back with us. She's been down with her back. Keep praying for healing upon her with that. He knew what it was like to be beat with a whip. And be crucified. He knows what it's like. To be forsaken. By your closest friends. And talk bad about. To be let down. He knows what that feels like. Because he's been here. In the flesh. In real time. He experienced it. Tempted in all points like us. Yet without sin. He knows. He knows. He knows everything. He knows every problem. He knows what. So when you pray, it's not just that God has an infinite knowledge of everything, He's actually felt it, experienced it in the flesh, just like you do. What a Savior! What a Savior! You know, Jeremy Camp wrote a song talks about that, about how all the bitter, weary ways and endless striving day by day when you barely have strength to pray in the valley low, how hard your fight has been, how deep the pain within, wounds that no one else has seen, hurts too much to show, all the doubt you're standing in between, all the weight that brings you to your knees. And his chorus goes, he knows. You don't even have to tell him. He knows. He knows all things. But he also knows in that he's felt those things. Every hurt and every sting. He has walked the suffering. He personally did. He knows. He knows. Lift, uh, Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes to the one who knows. I love it. Let's pray.